So good morning, church. Thought about what to call this sermon, but everything seems to be pointing in the direction of healing. So we're going to call this Healing Fest 2020. So it is so good to see everybody. We are in Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to continue forward with that. So if you brought Bibles, you can turn there. You won't offend me if you get up and move into the shade. I see some people sat where the shade is. If you just get hot, I won't be offended. I'm used to preaching to nobody, so this is a blessing. So Galatians chapter 6 is where we are today. Now, the Lord has put all of this together. I can't imagine a more appropriate or relevant passage to talk about in light of our current events than what we're going to read this morning in Galatians chapter 6. And there's about, I think I have six kind of marks of a truly spiritual family or community. Six marks of a truly spiritually moving family or community or church. So we'll go through that as we look. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we sit here, we can't help but thinking about, recognizing, understanding the times we live in. And we know that we are closer today than ever before to your return. So Lord, we pray that until you come, that we would occupy ourselves with truly meaningful work and thoughts and lives and behaviors, things that can actually bring peace and healing to our world while we await the only true and perfect kingdom, your kingdom. So Lord, work in our minds, open up this passage to us, and help me to move very strategically through it, Lord, not wasting any words, not wasting any breath, and not wasting any time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's people said, amen. So normally I read through the passage, but I'm just going to start in with a little bit of background and we'll jump right into chapter 6, verse 1. So we came through the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, Paul taking his time to work with this Galatian church to show them that legalism is not the way, that spirituality, the work of the Spirit in a person's life is really the way that we operate. Love is what guides our life, not law. And he's been working through that. And boy, if the end of Galatians 5 was the end of the book, it'd be wonderful. We crucified the flesh with all of its passions and desires, and everybody just lived spiritually, and we all lived happily ever after with love, joy, and peace. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The problem is it's not our experience. So this next section, we look at what grace-driven communities actually, how they operate without law, without going back to legalism, how do we operate as a healthy family or a healthy community or a healthy society? And there are certain things that we have to learn to do by grace instead of law. And so the first thing is, and I don't know if you're going to take notes, if you miss some of these You can listen to the sermon online or you can email me and I'll send you my notes. But number one, spiritual communities or spiritual families or spiritual churches have healthy ways of handling destructive behavior. He starts out in verse one, he says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So the problem is people should walk in the Spirit, shouldn't they? Say amen if you're awake, yeah, if you're not sizzling in the sun. People should do that. I should do that. They don't always, and I don't always. 
So how do we deal with it when people are walking in the works of the flesh, when they're being angry or divisive or there's hatreds or there's dissensions? Again, it sounds like our news, doesn't it? The typical response, the unhealthy or the unspiritual response, is either to ignore it or validate it somehow. Well, we won't call it a problem. We'll just say it's a lifestyle. We'll just, we'll authorize it. And culture is good at validating negative behavior if it suits the current time. So some ways we just kind of want to ignore it. And in some families, there are behaviors that we just don't talk about. We're not free to bring it up. We're just going to ignore it. We're going to brush it into the carpet. That's unhealthy. The other side is just remove it altogether. And if we can't remove it, we'll gossip about it. Notice what it says here. If a man is overtaken in a trespass, you are spiritual, restore in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself. So we know there's destructive behavior that happens, and if I can't talk about it, I'll gossip about it. Or I'll tell the pastor and have him deal with it. A healthy system, a godly family, just like a healthy body has an immune system. And when the immune system works well, the body is restored to health. We expect to fight disease, don't we? We expect that our bodies, as healthy as we are, are going to struggle with disease. It just happens to even healthy people. And this person who's being talked about is someone overtaken in a fault, overtaken in a trespass, literally means to be surprised by. In 1 Corinthians 11, it means to eat before others have the chance. To get there first, to eat sort of sneak up on somebody. And isn't that how the flesh happens to you? You get up in the morning, you pray, you read your Bible, and you're going to have a spiritual day, and then somebody cuts you off in traffic, and all of a sudden, flesh sneaks up on you. Like you're surprised. Where did that come from? So it's not that we intentionally want to do that. Sometimes these things just overtake us. They sneak up on us and grab us when we're least expecting it. So we can't ignore disease in a life, that would be unhealthy. Wouldn't it be unhealthy to go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you have cancer, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about good things and happy things. No, we can't ignore it. The other option, the other direction is amputation. I got a sore throat. Well, let's cut off your head. That's extreme too. And both of these, like amputation is often the extreme response of legalism. Someone's overtaken. Let's just cut them off. Let's cut them out. Let's get rid of them. Sometimes amputation is necessary, but it's not the first stop. Let's do a little bit less invasive things first. See, healthy families and healthy communities seek to mend to restore proper functioning. The word restore, it means literally to mend or repair. It speaks of James and John. When Jesus finds them, they're mending their nets. In other words, they have a fishing net. And the net is supposed to catch fish. But if it's got a big hole in it, it can't do what it was designed and made to do. So they take time from fishing to mend the net, to weave it back together so it can then be functional again to do what it was created to do. Communities and families are like that. We can't just press on, ignore the big hole in the net, and we can't just throw the net away and get a new one because nets are expensive. So we've got to take time to mend or restore what we have, and the goal is healing by restoration and not amputation. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The sword of justice cuts both ways, doesn't it? The minute I demand justice for somebody else, 
and condemnation, I then get that in return for myself. Then I am subject to justice without mercy. Restorative justice involves confrontation, confession, and forgiveness. I brought a book. You're going to list the books this morning. I've referred to this before. Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness, written in response to and to chronicle the experience of South Africa coming out from apartheid government. And this is what he says. There's so much more in this, but he says, we contend that there is another kind of justice, another way to handle immoral behavior in our community rather than just crime and punishment. In this other way, he says, we contend there's another kind of justice, restorative justice. Here, the central concern is not retribution or punishment. The central concern is healing of breaches, redressing of imbalances, the restoration of broken relationships, so seeking to rehabilitate both the victim and the perpetrator who should be given the opportunity to be reintegrated into the community he has injured by his offense. This is a far more personal approach regarding the offense as something that has happened to persons and whose consequence is a rupture in relationships. Desmond Tutu would claim that justice, restorative justice, is being served when efforts are being made to work for healing, for forgiving, and for reconciliation. The effect of amnesty is as if the offense had never happened. Doesn't this sound familiar? Isn't this what God does with us? Since the perpetrator's court record relating to that offense becomes a blank page. This means that the victim loses the right to sue for civil damages and compensation from the perpetrator. And it goes on to talk about the very high price that that is. One more little section. This is about a woman and her husband who were camping on vacation in Montana, and their, I believe, seven-year-old daughter went missing. She was kidnapped and ultimately killed. And this is what she said. Eventually, the man was captured, and he was arrested, and she met him and told him she forgave him. I'd finally come to believe, quote, that real justice is not punishment, but restoration, not necessarily to how things used to be, but to how they really should be. In both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, whence my beliefs and values come, the God who rises up from them is a God of mercy and compassion, a God who seeks not to punish, destroy, or puts us to death, but a God who works unceasingly to help and heal us, rehabilitate and reconcile us, restore us to the richness and fullness of life for which we have been created. Paul says to the Galatians that healthy families work toward restoration, not retribution. Who does this? How does it happen? People who were spiritual. People who are filled initially with love and joy and peace and gentleness. That's what he says. You who are spiritual, you go to them with the spirit of gentleness, power under control. Where authority to keep that ability for punishment under control and seeks restoration and healing rather than just retribution and vengeance. But it's got to be spiritual people. This is why we're going to struggle as a community. This is why we're going to struggle as a world because unspiritual people can't do it because you've got to first be filled with love and joy and peace to be able to think this way. The reason they could do it in South Africa is because the missionaries had brought Christian scriptures to the people before this ever happened. They were ready for reconciliation because they already had a heart of love, peace, and joy. And they were willing to forgive. And he says, considering yourself, so always an eye to ourselves, 
that I am just as susceptible as the next guy to moral failure. The second thing, love or grace-based communities are honest about the struggles of life and respond with loving involvement. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The problem is how we handle inequality and how we think about people who struggle. The typical way we think about it in America is we're independent. You rise and fall based on your own abilities, your own success, your own failure. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I did, you should, you're on your own to figure it out. Does that sound familiar? I made my way, you have to make yours. If you were better, if you were smarter, if you were wise like I am, then you wouldn't be in the place that you are. You wouldn't have the problems you have. In a legalistic or law-based culture, the strong believe the weak are responsible for everything that they get, for their own problems, and the strong have no responsibility to help them. In a grace-based community, people are moved by compassion, not vengeance, and have empathy to help relieve suffering. See, the spiritual response in healthy families, healthy communities, healthy churches, see the strong voluntarily using their strength to help those who are struggling and not simply to advance their own agenda. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was the suffering servant who bore, same thing, the word to bear one another's burdens is to bear our sicknesses. That's what Jesus did. He took my sickness on himself. Romans 15, Paul says, we then that are strong, if you consider yourself strong, ought to bear with the infirmities, the sicknesses of the weak, and not to please ourselves. To bear means to pick up something like stones to throw at a woman caught in adultery. Or like a pitcher of water being carried by a man who was going to be identified by the disciples. There's an old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Some of you guys know that I love cycling. You've heard that before. I enjoy it. And there's this principle called drafting. Do you know what that is? It's where the person in front kind of creates a wind barrier for the person behind them, makes it easier for them. You save about 30% effort by riding in someone else's draft. Now, strong cyclists can do one of two things. They can either forge on ahead and leave the weaker cyclist in the dust, or they can hang back, take the burden, and draft for the weaker cyclist so we all go together in a group. Healthy communities operate more like that. Well, whose job is it in this case? Not the pastor's job, although the pastor's just another person in the community, but it's one another. What does it say right there in verse 2? Bear one another's burdens. we got to deinstitutionalize things. It doesn't say let the institution bear people's burdens. It says bear one another's burdens. That's how healthy communities work. It's financial. It's emotional. It's grief. It's hardship. It's pain. I would much rather not enter into your yuck. You know what I'm talking about? I'd much rather that Jesus said the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and be at peace for yourself and ignore other people and their problems. This is how a person fulfills the law of love. The test of a community is how the stronger behave toward the weaker. You guys have done well. We've had a thriving benevolence ministry. We've really tried, and you've stepped up and helped each other. That's how communities thrive without law. 
personal responsibility. Wasn't it Cain that asked God, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is, in a sense, yes. Yes, Cain, you are. The third thing, verse 3, healthy people, healthy communities, healthy churches, spiritual churches. You know, a religious institution is not necessarily spiritual. You know that, right? We're looking at spiritual things. Spiritual people have a healthy biblical view of themselves with respect to others. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks himself to be something, when, and I'll add, in reality he's nothing, he deceives himself. Literally, he's delusional. The problem? Pride. There's man-made hierarchy, there's comparison, and those are all destructive to family and community. Unhealthy people, unhealthy communities, are delusional about themselves and base their worth on externals comparing themselves to others. We have an epidemic of desperation because of meaninglessness and powerlessness and inferiority and identity and insignificance and unimportance. See, it starts with how you think. If anyone thinks himself. See, it doesn't start with behavior. Behavior just comes from how I think about myself and how I think about you and how I think about myself relative to you. How many of you have heard someone say, well, I'm a good person. I'm glad I'm not like that person. That's pharisaical. That's the Pharisee who said that about the tax collector. The tax collector's beating his chest in the temple saying, God, have mercy on me, a wretched sinner. He knew he was a sinner. The problem with the Pharisee was he thought he was better than he was. And he looked at his works. He looked at his performance to believe that he was more important than other people. He was more valuable because of his importance and because of what he'd done, whether it's religious or just what our culture values. Think about it. We say the problem is self-esteem. Self-esteem is too low. But what does the Bible say? The problem with people is they esteem themselves too highly. The problem comes when we think that we are better, deserve more than we really do, that we're above somebody else. How many times have we said in our mind, I'll show them that I should be respected? Isn't that the voice behind every school shooting, every incidence of bullying? I'll show them I deserve respect. I deserve better than this. Don't they know who I am? Behind many affairs are the words, he or she doesn't appreciate me. This person appreciates me. They see who I really am. But that person doesn't appreciate me. See, the problem is we think we are somebody more important than others. And what we say to ourselves is, well, I'm important. I'm only as good as, I'm only valuable if, and I base my value on my tribe, my education, my membership, my clothes, the gun I carry, the power I wield, my denomination, my job, my money. And if I work hard enough, I can be somebody. I remember being in Washington, D.C., and one of the senators said, some people come to D.C. because they want to be something, and some people come to D.C. because they want to do something. And there's a radical difference between the two. See, this person is a person that deceives himself because in reality, Paul says, they think they're something, but in reality, they're nothing. Really, nobody. And Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, even if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but if I have not love, what does it say, gang? I am nothing. So evidently, God's value of people is not only intrinsic, he loves us not because of who we are, but because who he is. But the measure of being somebody is not my success, but my love. 
That's the measure of success of your family. It's not how many kids you have or how much success you have or how big your house is or whether you homeschooled or not or what kind of music you listen to. The question is, is love at the center of your family? Is love at the center of our community? Now he's going to continue on with this thought. Verse 4, healthy people know that being loved and giving love is the fruit of the Spirit satisfy the longing for purpose and bring true inner joy. Look at verse 4. I love this verse. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. The Message Bible says it like this. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given, and then sink yourself into that. Typical, unspiritual, natural response Unhealthy communities reinforce blaming and place responsibility for my feelings of meaningless outwardly. It's their fault. It's the government's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's society's fault. It's history's fault. It's those people's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. You get where I'm going with this? That's a typical response. It places blame It perpetuates a victim mentality. It makes excuses. It tears others down. Godly or healthy families, healthy communities, spiritual communities are composed of people who may not be successful or powerful by the world standards, but who experience the life-changing power of love in action. Healthy people ask the question, what good am I doing for others? And by the way, blaming is not considered doing good for others. And some of you think you have the gift of criticism. That's my spiritual gift, Pastor. I have the gift of criticism. I have the gift of knowing what other people should do. That doesn't count. You see, life is really a lot about power, isn't it? That's what we see going on in our current events. It's all about power and the feeling of powerlessness. There's positive power and there's negative power. Anger plus ungodliness yields a power that seeks to destroy the power of anger and vengeance and cursing and unforgiveness. But anger plus love gives a power to build and to change. When you love and you express gentleness and self-control, you experience the feeling of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what people want to know what power feels like. When you become a radical lover of people, you feel extremely empowered because now you are making your decisions for yourself. Someone else isn't dictating what you should do with your life and what you should do with your emotions. It's extremely enabling. It's extremely empowering. So the changes of the emotional life, when you get on board with God, when you're filled with the Spirit, when your life becomes transformed, you find rejoicing in yourself. You say, wow, look what God is doing in my life. I used to be this, now I'm this. Anybody look back on their life and say, I've got a string of destructive behavior in my life. But you get saved, your life is transformed, and all of a sudden, things start to change. And you can find joy now, a sense of value, not in another, not by comparing myself to others and putting them down to raise myself up, but a sense of value that comes from being a loving person. When you know that your purpose is to love, that's why God designed you, to receive his love and to give his love. That's your purpose. And everything else is just icing on the cake. And when you latch onto that, 
all of a sudden you feel like your life has meaning. You feel like your life has purpose. Regardless of whether you're on isolation or whether you live in the city or live in the country, Lord, give me unlovable people so I can love them in your name. Because each one, ultimately, he says, has to bear his own load. So in one sense, we bear one another's burdens so we can go with you. We can do it with you, but we can't do it for you. You ultimately stand alone before God to answer for yourself for what gifts he's given you and what you've done with it. I can't want it more than you. I've sat in marriage counseling, and I'll tell couples, I can't want to repair, restore this relationship more than you want it. I can't do it for you. I can't bear this. Ultimately, you have to want to do it. And at some point, we stop blaming God. We stop blaming government. We stop blaming history. We stop blaming society. We stop blaming coronavirus. And we examine ourselves. And we say, what have I been doing? What is my responsibility? Isn't it so easy to blame others? Something about that makes us feel like we're accomplishing something. We're going to make the world a better place if we point out injustice. The question is, are you doing what Micah, I think it's Micah 6.8, this is what God requires? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Are you doing that? Ultimately, you will stand or fall based on your own behaviors. Number five, spiritual people have learned to work at the source of the problem rather than trying to control the outcome. Let me say that again. Spiritual people have learned to work at the source of the problem rather than trying to control the outcome. Look at verse 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. The problem, legalism is deceived into thinking results can be unnaturally changed by imposing law and restriction on outcomes. All the world can do is try to reform the sinner without changing the heart. It's lunacy. What God does, what the Spirit does, is transforms the life on the inside, which brings behavioral change and new fruits. Legalism tries to get unspiritual people, fallen people, to be virtuous. You've heard the quote, if you always do what you've always done, then what's the rest of that? You will always get what you've always gotten. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. That's why history repeats itself. The example that Paul gives, the example that the Bible gives, there is a law, it's a principle, the law of reaping and sowing. We have the law of love that operates in our life. We have the law of reaping and sowing. See, I got this problem in my garden. Anybody else gardening right now or trying to? All right, so you got this problem. I got a problem in my garden. I love cucumbers. Any other cucumber lovers? Cucumber tomato salad. Man, one of the best things on the face of the earth. Other people have cucumbers. I deserve cucumbers. The problem is all I keep getting is squash. Now, I don't know what's wrong. I plant my squash seeds. I mean, it shouldn't matter what kind of seeds I plant, right? I mean, don't be judgmental. Don't condemn me. How dare you judge my seeds? I mean, I'm planting squash seeds. I prune. I fertilize. I watch videos about growing cucumbers. I read books. I attend cucumber seminars. 
but for some reason, I only get squash. See, it's not fair. I should be able to get what I want in my garden and not be judged for the seeds I plant. It's to defy a law of sowing and reaping. It's God's law. That's why the Bible says God will not be mocked. Look, no one that's going to go, ha, I planted squash seeds and got cucumbers. Never happened, ever. That's why it's called a law. It will never, ever, ever happen. You always get what you've always got. You always get whatever's at the root of the thing. Doesn't matter how much you prune or fertilize or how many seminars you go to, how many marriage conferences you go to, it doesn't matter. What matters is what seeds are you planting. See, the first part of the rule of the law of sowing and reaping is you always get what you plant. Why don't you just tell me, Steve, plant cucumber seeds. Oh, why didn't anybody tell me that? Jesus said the way you measured out, it's measured back to you. Simple. Life is really simple. If you give out vengeance, what do you get? If you give out judgment and condemnation, what do you get? How many of you know the saying, I think it was Einstein, the same mind that caused the problem can't fix it. The second rule, it's whatever you plant is what you get, and it's always multiplied. You plant one cucumber seed, you get one cucumber plant, it's got 15 cucumbers on it, and they're all loaded with seeds. Whatever you plant always multiplies. And the third thing is it's never immediate. There's always a time between when you plant and when you actually reap the harvest. So the question Paul asked them, the question Paul asked you, we don't need law. We don't need rules. The question is, what do you want? Do you want moral decay or do you want everlasting life? That's what he says to them. If you sow to the flesh, anger, outbursts of wrath, dissensions, divisions, hatred, heresy, what kind of fruit will you get? The same and worse and multiplied. It actually ends in eternal judgment. That's what Paul said. People who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you sow to the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Did I skip any? Then what you get is Zoe, Zoe life, which is, there's two words for life, bios, where we get biology, and Zoe, which is the word used of God's life, which is where we get zoology. Zoe life is life in context. It's the animated life living in the context it was meant to live in. That's why we go to the zoo. Zoe life is at the root of zoology. It's seeing creatures in their context living how they were designed to live. At least that's the idea. Zoe life is perpetual life lived as God intended it to be. And it's a life of love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest. But you have to plant those seeds to get that life. You have to make a choice in your mind to say, I'm going to love instead of hating. I'm going to forgive instead of condemning. I'm going to be gentle. I'm not going to demand the full extent of what I could for justice. I'm going to choose mercy. I'm going to entertain and, and exercise self-control. How many of you know that takes way more power than letting loose? So the final one, you guys still with me? Final one. Spiritual people remember that good results take time and tenacity. Tenacity, the quality or fact of being very determined. Verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary, church, while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those 
who are of the household of faith. The problem, it's so easy to become discouraged in living a healthy spiritual life. We feel like sometimes we get immediate results if we do this thing. If I throw a fit, if I throw a tantrum, then people step up. They step in. They do what I want. And we'll exchange immediate inferior results for long-lasting superior results by falling back to the flesh instead of keeping planting good seeds and waiting. Remember I said there's a lag of time? You keep planting those good seeds. See, we're an immediate results kind of people. I loved somebody once, and it didn't work out how I expected. Therefore, I'm done being gentle with people. But wait a second. I tried church. I tried Jesus, and it didn't work. Well, did you continually try? Did you continually sow to the Spirit? Well, no, it was one time. It was really hard. They didn't do what I wanted, and so I gave up. And that's the reality is sometimes it's easier. The problem is it's easy to become discouraged in our new life, especially if you want fast results. The typical, I tried once, but it didn't work out, so I fell back to old patterns. To be spiritual, it takes trust in God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your path. He'll make straight your path. See, healthy people, strong communities, godly communities and churches live for the long-term reward of doing good for good's sake. Reward not from people, but from God. See, I think every human being needs a garden. If you don't garden, you should garden. Tons of lessons there. Because you got to get the seed. i got to tell Helga, okay, or Helga tells me, what kind of seed do you want? What kind of vegetables do you want? Well, I want lemongrass. So that means now you know what kind of seed do I have to get. i got to get lemongrass seed. That's the start. Got to start in the right place. Got to deal with the root. i got to get lemongrass seed. Then we got to plant that thing in the dirt. And it sits there. And I plant the seed and I come out tomorrow and go, oh man, no fruit? Come on. It's a bum deal. So slow seeds. It's frustrating. How many of you have given up on a garden because it was too frustrating? Be honest. You're at church. Takes too long. Go to Food Lion and get it right away. Someone else grows it. Let them be patient. So you get the seed, you plant it, then you got to water it, then you got to fertilize it, and you got to wait and wait, and wait. Then it comes out of the ground. You're like, oh, it's coming out of the ground. It's still a month before you're going to see a cucumber. So you've got to keep at it. Keep fertilizing it. Keep caring for it. I have one more book to refer to. This is called Essays to Do Good by a Puritan pastor named Cotton Mather. Anybody ever heard of him before? Famous during the Salem Witch Trials. This book was Benjamin Franklin's favorite book. For those of you that like government and history, this is what he says. And a curious and interesting fact is related by Dr. Franklin as to the influence exerted upon himself by this volume. When in France in 1779, he addressed a letter to Dr. Mather, son of our author, Cotton Mather, in which he alludes to his father's work as follows. Now, this is the quote from Franklin. Permit me to mention one little instance, which though it relates to myself, will not be quite uninteresting to you. When I was a boy, I met with a book entitled Essays to Do Good, which I think was written by your father. It had been so little regarded by its former possessor that several leaves of it were torn out. The person who had it before just tore pages out. 
but the remainder gave me such a turn of thinking as to have an influence on my conduct through life. For I've always set a greater value on the character of a doer of good than any other kind of reputation. And if I have been, as you seem to think, a useful citizen, the public owes the advantage of it to that book. The book, Essays to Do Good. A couple quick quotes from the book. He says, it is a sorrowful reflection that if men would set themselves to devise good, a world of good might be done more than is now done in this present evil world. If everybody set themselves to do good, what kind of world would we have? It makes perfect sense. One more quote I have marked here. He says, a workless faith is a worthless space. By a man's outward acts of vigor, you judge his internal health. The actions of men are more certain indications of what is within than all their sayings. So Paul concludes this part of giving what I would consider some of the most valuable insight for our current events, wouldn't you? I think this is just such a powerful truth because right now everybody is caught up in the emotions and trying to figure out how to fix the problem. But what we're saying is how do we fix the behavior? The most powerful unit on the face of planet Earth is the family. And if we can help people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the power of transformed lives, to see families transformed, we'll see communities transformed. Whatever the color, whatever the background, whatever the economy, everybody has the chance to love. And everybody has the chance to do good with what little they have. Would you agree? If you agree with that, say amen. Transform families, spiritual families, make spiritual communities. Spiritual communities make spiritual states. Spiritual states make spiritual nations. And spiritual nations make a spiritual planet. But as long as people reject God, our punishment will be human government. Because whether you're the governor or the president, or I'm the president or the governor, we're all messed up. And we'll all mess it up. What we're really longing for, what everybody that is angry right now is really longing for, is the kingdom of God and the Prince of Peace. That's the only one. He is the only one that will ever satisfy our deepest longings for love, meaningfulness, purpose, justice, and eternal life as it was meant to be lived. So if you need prayer, then please don't let the moment pass. Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. It starts with you. You're the problem. You need Jesus Christ if you want to live a transformed life. And today you can pray and you can ask God to forgive you, to change your life, to give you a new set of passions, a new set of goals. You can plant new seeds and have a new life and be a new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that these seeds of your word would not land on hard ground. Pray that for everyone here listening or everyone at home watching or anyone who might watch this message sometime in the future online would be touched and convicted by the true need not for more law, but for more spirit-filled people on planet Earth. I see no other way and have no other hope, God, than you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen.